Thank you so much uh, for the opportunity again to share uh, God's word. Uh, I appreciated very much the item by Jude and the team, uh, Broken Vessels. It was uh, touched my heart and I'm sure it touched your heart too. I was going to clap in appreciation, but then I looked around and I thought, well, <laughs> that may bring too much emotion for you guys to... <laughs> to uh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, but it was really good, so thank you so much. It really touched my heart. Uh, this morning we're going to look at this subject. Now, I've given you a, uh, an outline again, as I did last week, that gives you an outline of the three chapters and then on the back of that sheet you have a small summary of Exodus in the Gospel and Jesus in the Old Testament and that's for your reflection and, uh, and meditation. You note that the comparison and contrast of Exodus and the Gospel it comes out of a book by Sidlow Baxter, Explore the Book, a series that he wrote on the Scriptures and those of you who are old enough to remember when Sidlow Baxter came to Belgrave Heights uh, many years ago, one of his things that he always used to say as he shared the word, he would pause and say, are you listening? And then he would continue and uh, these uh, books are, are very valuable. So I trust that you uh, enjoy uh, that uh, meditation on the gospel in the uh, Old Testament. Uh, I don't have for you an outline of uh, what we're going to share this morning about God who provides for his people, but if you keep the front one in uh, your hand, you'll be able to follow with us as we go through. The God who provides for his people. Uh, I've uh, divided those three chapters into three things. He provides meat and bread in chapters 16 through to 17, which was the quail and the manna. He provided victory in battle in chapter 17, part of chapter 17 over the Amalekites. And there we have a picture of God as Jehovah Nissi, the Lord is my banner. And thirdly, in this section, in chapter 18, we have God providing order out of chaos through Jethro's counsel to Moses about delegation when his task was becoming beyond him. As I looked at this particular passage, I was reminded of a visit to China uh, back in 2014, Bless China International work in Kunming. And uh, we went down to southern China uh, to a place that I couldn't pronounce, I'll call it Banner. Uh, and, uh, and there was a restaurant, a hotel, and a restaurant related to that hotel that was called Nisi Hotel. And it was a Christian businessman who invested in a hotel and, and a restaurant where we did breakfast Uh, as a means of provision for Christians who are passing through and also uh, for uh, short-term teams. Uh, This particular place... This particular place is not working too well today. Why is that? Uh, Oh, there we go. Uh, Yeah, so if you see uh, Kunming... Does that work? No. Uh, Kunming is in the centre there and then we travelled right down the bottom, right near the border... Of, uh, of Thailand and Laos right down the tip there, very much near the Golden Triangle. And of course, uh, it, it's a place that we uh, could hardly know that we're in China. 
because uh, in this dark place where drugs were prevalent and where Buddhism is strong, uh, we, uh, we saw uh, Nisi, the Lord, our banner, uh, and uh, as a ministry to people who were uh, sharing the gospel there. And so we praise the Lord for that. Yeah, I'm not doing too well here, brother. Oh, yes. Okay. Oh, yes. Okay. Thanks very much. <laughs> Works real good. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> All right. So, uh, yeah, so as I reread, uh, now that's a little aside, uh, being in Banner uh, and uh, Hotel Nisi, but uh, it brought to mind as we uh, have this part of Scripture this morning. Uh, as I reread the story of Exodus, I'm stunned by how the people of Israel complain like they do. And uh, I thought I'd share about this this morning because this is only the beginning of their complaints. So as you go through Exodus, you're going to come, uh, come against it time and time again. So this will give you a foundation to understand. Uh, they continually complain. How could they be so forgetful? How could they be so ignorant? How could they be so stupid, if you like? God didn't just humble Pharaoh, he broke his spirit and revealed Pharaoh's impotence. A slave people and their God left him and his nation in shambles. This was a display of power that sent vibrations throughout the whole world, inspiring fear and awe. Yet Israel's response to this spectacular deliverance from Egypt is not mainly praise and worship and wholehearted trust. Instead, Israel responds with grumbling, complaining, murmuring, quarrelling. No water, Moses. Where's the beef, Moses? I have blisters on my... And now I'm using a bit of licence here. I have blisters on my feet, Moses. Who made you boss? Are we there yet, Moses? (laughs) Spiritual amnesia set in quickly and covered the eyes of Israel's hearts. So soon had they forgotten God's gracious and miraculous deliverance. This spiritual amnesia, forgetting God's deliverance and provision, is a deadly disease. This wasn't just a headache-induced grumbling or a low-blood-sugar complaining. This was faithlessness. It is the heart that says, I know better than God, if only he would follow my plan. And yet that's my heart and your heart. We grumble about the weather, about the lack of help, about food or the lack of service. We grumble about change, about others and their lack of consideration. We grumble because we think life is about us and have no idea what pain we cause others. Now, I think uh, this is a particular message to men this morning about their their wives and some consideration. Men, we grumble sometimes and we don't appreciate what our wives do within the home. And we grumble and we grumble and so because we don't get our way. Grumbling, whining, thanklessness are not ultimately the heart's response to circumstances but it's a heart response to God. 
Israel grumbled at their enslavement. He grumbled when Moses came on the scene and still grumbled as they wandered safely in the wilderness. Their complaining wasn't rooted in their scenery, but it was in their heart. The same is true of you and me. A heart of gratitude and thankfulness isn't dependent on our bank statement or upon our doctor's diagnosis or the praise we receive for a job well done. Thanklessness and grumbling, regardless of our situation, even our suffering, reflect our hearts. They are sin. Spiritual amnesia is a deadly disease that threatens our faith and our joy more than any cancer. It penetrates to the core and rots our hearts from within. How can we guard ourselves from this spiritual forgetfulness? How can we root out the cancer that threatens our joy and faith? Very simply, the antidote that we find in this particular passage is to remember. Now hold that thought because we're going to come back to it a little later in this message. This morning I want to focus on the characteristic of a complainer. As we do this I believe we'll be more easily able to identify complaining in our hearts and fight it more successfully. It will help break the negative, the critical, the pessimistic mindset that cripples spiritual growth. This is really important for us to understand and we're confronted with it big time through the people of God in the passages that we've got this morning. It's really important because few things can quell your desire for the glory of God like a complaining spirit does. So the stakes are high. If you or I allow the spirit of complaining to go unchecked, we will not make the spiritual progress that we should because this is not just about dealing with a little annoying habit of complaining. It is about the whole trajectory of life in God. And so we come to this particular passage. In the first first three verses we read, the whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food that we wanted. But you have brought us out in this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Now, a little drawing shows you where we are. I thought you might understand if I... <laughs> no. So you can see this here, where we are. We're up the top there, we cross the Red Sea. We're down coming towards Mount Sinai. We're crossing where Elam is. And there's the rest of the, uh, the, the, the trip in the wilderness that took over 40 years. Perhaps a better uh, illustration is this one uh, that shows the wilderness of sin between Elam and Sinai and where Mount Sinai is in the Exodus route, etc., so that we've got our bearing. The people of Israel have left the wonderful springs and shade trees of Elam because their journey to the promised land is not yet complete. And once again, they go from a place of victory 
to a place of testing. As we so often do in our lives, they come into the wilderness of sin. Now the word sin here is a Hebrew word, not our word for sin. So although the Israelites do sin here, they are not in the desert of sin as in a transgression against God. They are in the desert of sin, meaning thornbush. As they arrive there, the people begin to complain again. This time, a stronger word is used than we saw in chapter 15, where they had no water. In chapter 16, this is a full-scale outbreak of complaining and rebellion. Moses and Aaron are bearing the brunt of complaint from the whole nation. I would like to suggest that it is based on four faulty foundations that I will call the, the, the characteristics of complaint. The first is a misplaced blame in chapter 2. The second is an unrealistic view of the past and I, I, I breezed over these last week and uh, as I prepared I came back to them uh, for this morning. An unrealistic view of the present and then no hope for the future. So we look at the first one. A misplaced blame. The Israelites are grumbling against Moses and Aaron going so far as accusing them of leading Israel out into the desert to kill them by starving them to death. These men had been their faithful leaders but now they turn on them, blaming them for all their problems. But this blame is misplaced because it is not Moses and Aaron who led them out of Egypt. Who led them out of Egypt? It was God. It was not Moses and Aaron who brought the plagues and parted the waters. It was God. Yet rather than call on God for help or trust in God to provide as he'd already done so many times before, the Israelites in their time of struggle turn on their earthly leaders. It's like shooting the messenger as you were. The misplaced blame game is as old as the Garden of Eden and continues to this day in all kinds of areas of our lives. And men, sometimes we get involved in that blame game rather than taking responsibility ourselves. When the team is not playing well, you fire the manager. My problems are always somebody else's fault. We blame the government, we blame the family, we blame the church. It's always easy to look for a scapegoat rather than calling on God and trusting him. In the case of the Israelites, there is no one to blame. There is simply someone to trust and that someone was God. It's normally the same for us. The more we turn away from blame and toward dependence upon God, the better off we are. These things are so simple but so hard to learn. But really, what good does it do to have somebody to blame? You probably know of people whose problems are always somebody else's fault. You'd think after a while that they would realise that they are the problem. But we don't get that message. But then I realise I do the same thing way more often than I would like to admit Misplaced blame is something that we're all guilty on, guilty of from time to time. So the first characteristic of, compl- of a complainer is misplaced blame. The second is an unrealistic view of the past. I can't help but chuckle when I hear the Israelites talk about their wonderful past. 
Goodness me. They act like their life in Egypt was one of plenty, like as if it was one of great joy. But we've studied Exodus up to this point, haven't we? We've gone section by section through this great book. We remember the words of those opening chapters, like words like groaning, words like toil, words like grief. The Israelites had suffered through 400 years of slavery. For a time they grieved as they saw their babies thrown into the Nile River. They made bricks without straw. They suffered under the harsh taskmasters. Yet when they think about it now, it's so wonderful. Come on. I guess the grass is greener even on the other side of the Red Sea. But this is something we do too. When we face hardship in the present, we tend to pine for the past. And in our pining, we tend to overemphasise the goodness of the bygone days and minimise the hardships. So yes, there are many ways in which the good old days were good, but there were also many ways about the good old days which were not so good. We need to remember this when we face hard times in the present. The past was never quite so good as we think it was. It had problems then too, both personally and nationally. Our relationships were not always easy. Church life was not always harmonious. Work was not always a breeze. Life was always been a mix of hardship and blessing. Life has always been a mix of pain and, and pleasure. And so we see the second characteristic of a complainer is the unrealistic view of the past. The third characteristic is an unrealistic view of the the present. The Israelites were living with an unrealistic view of the present for at least two reasons. The first, they had food. They were only a few weeks out of Egypt and we remember that when they left Egypt they, they they left with vast herds and great livestock. Now, of course, these animals would have had to be fed as well, but surely from these animals there would have been some resources for survival, like milk and cheese and maybe some of the animals themselves. Secondly, and more important though, the Israelites had God. They had his presence with them in the pillar of cloud and the fire at night and he had provided for them repeatedly. He had heard their prayers in Egypt and moved on their behalf, defeating the most powerful empire in the world through the plagues and the Red Sea. He brought them out into the wilderness and had in just a few short weeks turned bitter water to sweet and provided for them an oasis in the desert at Elam. He would not forsake them now in their time of need. Now I'm not pretending that Israel had no problems. Gathering sufficient food in these circumstances would have been difficult but not impossible. I just don't see the marks of desperation in this passage which were evident at the end of chapter 15. We can live longer without food than without water. One of the things that leads me to this conclusion on the problem of food is that whereas chapter 15 clearly said the Israelites were three days without water when they started complaining, this passage makes no mention of any kind of shortage of food. In fact, it seems their problem was not that they had no food, 
but they did not have the right kind of food they remembered having in Egypt. In other words, they were longing for the kind of food they had there, meat and bread. It may well be that their problem was more connected to their greed than their need. They had food, but they wanted what they had back in Egypt. Now we see that God is so gracious. You know, in these few short weeks, you you and I probably would have said, go away. But God in his graciousness provides exactly what they craved for in manna and quail. But I hope what you see is that the Israelites had no, uh, had an unrealistic view of the present. Just as the past is never quite so good as we imagine it to be, the present is never quite so bad as we imagine it to be. The Israelites were convinced it would be their lot to starve. But they forgot what the resources in their midst and most of all they forgot God who delights to provide for his people. Our discontent with the present can be driven by our overly optimistic view of the past. It can also be driven by our greed, our desire for the best of everything and for comfort above all. It's interesting that many restaurants are using happiness and comfort as their key advertising idea. Coke, open happiness, or going back a few years, have a Coke and smile. And of course you can't leave McDonald's out. What is the kids' meal called? Happy meal. Ah, yes. Enjoyment of everything has become our goal. And when we are not enjoying something, we are sad. We have made life an all or nothing game of just what I want or else I'm going to gripe and complain and maybe sue somebody. Our culture is deeply guilty of unrealistic expectations of the present just like the Israelites were. When Paul says in the Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he's not talking about ripping up a phone book in half or leaping over tall buildings in a single bound. He's talking about being content whether he is in living in abundance or in need. This is the life God calls us to in the here and now, a life that looks at today through the steady gaze of faith knowing that God will supply what is needed, knowing that we can trust him even if all our dreams are not coming true. Because sometimes we have all the wrong dreams. We want fame or fortune or be admired when God has shown us what he requires for us, what is good for you. He requires that we do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. You know, the only difficulty I have with the manna that God provided is that you read, as we read this morning, that for 40 years they ate manna. For 40 years, man. You know, Nancy and I, as we grew up, uh, we had a grandmother who used to buy tripe and uh, lamb's fry, you know, liver. And every week we would have lamb's fry and tripe. Every, I've never had any since I've left home at the age of 20. <laughs> so, <laughs> but for 40 years they had God's manner. So the final, I'll get sidetracked. The, the final characteristic of a complainer is no hope for future. 
The people of Israel are in such despair that they wish that they would have died in Egypt. They are saying that they would rather have stayed slaves and died after a life of slavery than to see the hand of God at work in their lives. The work of God was too painful. The way was too hard. They weren't interested. Just a few weeks out of Egypt, they are ready to pack it in and give up. And this from a people who had been promised so much from God and had seen so much of God's work on their behalf. This same hopelessness about the future is in too many other places in the Bible to think that this is a one-time occurrence. I also see it in too many times when I look in the mirror because there are times when we all feel that sense of hopelessness that we wonder whether it's worth going on in in following Jesus and being obedient to the call that he's put in in our life when things don't turn out exactly the way we we had planned. Remember seeing it in Abraham when in despair over his childlessness he suggested that his servant Eliezer could be his heir. Remember seeing it in the words of Job's wife as Job wrestled with God's work. She told him to curse God and to die. Remember seeing Elijah after the great victory over the 800 prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, Elijah running for his life at the threats of Jezebel and wishing to die. Israel had no hope for the future because they were focused on the wilderness. As long as we are focused on the wilderness of our circumstances, we will never break free to real hope. Until we realise that if we know Jesus Christ, we are in God's hand and nothing can take us out of his hand or to separate us from his love. We always will be paralysed by poor circumstances until we see that God will be faithful to complete the good work that he has begun in us. We will always tremble at new challenges. That's the nature of our humanity. But with the faith that he will never leave us or forsake us, we can go forward with courage knowing that circumstances are not eternal and that they cannot ultimately defeat us because we are safe with the one who leads us even when he leads us through the valley of the shadow. Christians of all people should be the most optimistic people in the world. We have eternal life through Christ. We have the promise that God is moving forward in his plan for this world. He will not leave us. He will work in and through us for his glory and our joy. And we must believe that as we are active in representing him in the world in which we live. So we've looked today at some characteristics of a complainer. I ask you and I ask myself, to search our hearts today. Are we marked by any of these characteristics? Are we quick to shift blame and try to find a scapegoat instead of trusting in the sovereignty of God? Are we living in the past? Are we looking at the present in an unrealistic way? Are we believing the lie 
that we have no future. We're on the brink of giving up. If so, we may be prone to complaining. Complaining will erode your trust in God and put you at odds with others and make you miserable within. It's really one of the worst ways you can live. God wants to free you from the grip of complaining and fill you with gratitude and with graciousness. As we reflect, I suggest that in my introduction, that spiritual, as we reflect, as we close, I suggest in my introduction that spiritual amnesia is a deadly disease that threatens your faith and your joy more than cancer. It penetrates to the core and rots your heart from within. The chemotherapy of the soul. How can we guard ourselves from this spiritual forgetfulness? How can we root out the cancer that threatens our joy and faith? Very simply, the antidote is to remember. Remember God's gracious deliverance and redemption. Establish it in your memory. Memorise it. Paint it on the walls of your house. Journal it and reread it each morning. God gives us this pattern in the Exodus. Israel has just been given their menu for the next 40 years, manna from heaven. Gather six days, a double portion on the last, and rest on the Sabbath. But then God commands Moses to take an omer of manna, about two litres, and keep it in a jar as a reminder of God's faithfulness. There are two miracles here. The obvious is that God fed a couple of million people with manna from heaven for 40 years. I mean, my mind boggles even when they say Moses said to the people. How could he say to two million people? I mean, <laughs> loudspeaker, microphone, how does he tell two million people what God's told him? You know, But here, the obvious thing is that God fed a couple of million people with manna from heaven for 40 years. No gluten allergies, no low-carb diet, no lack of vital nutrients. God sustains his people miraculously to teach them how he can and will provide for their daily bread everything they need. The second is that the manna in the jar did not spoil as it normally would. Exodus 16.20 God kept the manna from spoiling to remind Israel that he not only keeps manna from spoiling but that he will keep his people alive even in the wilderness. This jar of white flakes was to be an enduring reminder that God provides. He provides in the exodus from Egypt and he provides in the desert wasteland. We too must remember we, God is saying the same thing to you and me. If you're inclined to grumble or to be thankless or to complain about our circumstances, God graciously reminds us that we must remember his gracious redemption and provision. And I would encourage you to take a moment and look back on God's fingerprints over your life. Remember how God has protected you from making shipwreck of your life. Remember how God graciously let you grow up in a godly family. Remember how God awakened you to the ugliness of your sin. Remember how you walked away from that 
terrible car crash. Remember how your wife or your sister or your mum survived breast cancer. Remember how you, you had mentors and key friends to guide you in your faith. Remember how he sustained you during that session of unemployment. Remember how God miraculously healed you. Remember that impossible prayer request that God answered. Remember how you had no money and God provided the exact amount that you needed. Remember God. The antidote to spiritual amnesia is making every effort to recall and remember God's gracious deliverance. The fact that you, a sinner, who was an enemy of God and now a beloved child of God is a miracle. God's sovereign plan and purpose enables us to have confidence in God despite the threatening circumstances that surround us. And we live in a fairly difficult world, a world that brings fear and uncertainty and undermines our faith, the threat of terrorism, the threat of home invasions, domestic violence, the cost of living, marriage equality, safe schools program, etc., etc. Everything that undermines the very fabric of our society is thrown at us daily in the society in which we live. These things concern us and in some ways threaten us, but God still provides and protects for his it protects his people if we listen and obey god is with us through jesus christ who lives in the hearts of every person who believes and he enables us to please god by doing justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our god brothers and sisters to be agents of change and a blessing to others by sharing his word and demonstrating that word in our lives is a message of hope that Jesus lives. Don't let the wonder ever fade. Remember the one whom we serve, the risen Jesus, and commit your life to sharing that good news of God's faithfulness to, to our family, to our community, and to all that we have influence with. Let us bow together in prayer. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the wonder of your word. Thank you, Father, that you have supplied the needs of your people. We thank you for the illustration of this through the people of Israel, through the manna and through the quail. We thank you, Father, for the victory in battle that you gave Moses and, uh, and the people of Israel over the Amalekites, Father. We thank you, Father, for the wisdom of Jethro to bring order out of chaos in managing such a large group of people. Father, we, we thank you uh, that we can have confidence in the one who has called us to serve you. And, Father, we pray that daily we will remember your goodness to us. We'll remember where we have come from, from our rebellion and from our enmity against you. And, and the privilege that we have to be called your people, the privilege that we have to be a community of faith that demonstrates the power of transformation in lives 
Father, thank you that this message reinforces the fact that we need not be weighed down with the weight of the world, the threats of the world and the discouragements of the world as we hear the bad news, but the good news is that in Jesus, through our faith in him, we have the victory now, but we have the ultimate victory in the future, Father. And we thank you. We pray that we'll go out with confidence and with courage and and, and with the empowering of your spirit, guided by your word and empowered by your spirit to be your representatives in this community so that others may come to know Jesus as their personal saviour. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. And the people said, Amen. 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 God bless you. Thank you.